0: says, as when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said to him, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him and have bound themselves together by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which would be 9 p.m., and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And Father, we humbly ask now for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit to prepare us as well as to just be the one who would speak to us what it is that you would have us to glean and to learn and to hear from you out of this sacred portion of your holy inspired word that you've given to us. Lord, may all the reason that you spoke these things forth in the word of God somehow find their way to minister in an applicable way to our hearts this day personally. Bless your word and speak to us, we ask, in the name of Jesus expectantly. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, God's plan, as well as God's providence, always tend to kind of work together. When I speak about God's plan, of course, I'm referring to something that God himself has determined to transpire, and anything that God determines to transpire, God also has the power to bring it to pass. When I talk about God's providence, that's something that's a term we kind of sometimes hear about. It probably gets used a lot more frequently, it seems, than it did in prior days and generations of the church. But God's providence is this wonderful thing of God's loving, if you would, protective care for us that causes God to act in our best interests with the awareness of what our future holds. God being all-knowing. In fact, the Bible says that he actually is the beginning and the end. He doesn't just know the beginning and know the end. He actually spans the beginning to the end all of time and eternity. And God's loving and protective care for us causes him to act in our best interest, knowing what will happen in our future and seeing ahead, he orchestrates events circumstances, things that need to happen in order to prepare for us or provide in advance that which will help us best to experience what God wants for our lives. God's determined purposes and plans despite what unfolds among sinful humanity and the rebellious acts of people, what God wills to come to pass. God is going to work to coordinate life events God overrules in situations that happen in life. God has ways to stir and direct the hearts of people's you know, minds and their attitudes and even their decisions and thoughts to overrule in situations to ultimately bring about what he wants to come to pass, and ultimately what ends up being best for you and I as his followers. Psalm 33 declares this, The Lord makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. The writer of Proverbs says in chapter 19, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. What a wonderful thing to know that God works by his providence through circumstances in just everyday affairs in order to bring about his plan in the end, no matter what happens in between, and he's able to bring about good things that he wants for our lives. And that's really what we see happening in this next section we're looking at this morning as Paul the Apostle experiences God working on his behalf and the providence of God doing what's best for his servant. Remember the backdrop because it kind of helps as we keep marching through these remaining chapters in the book of Acts. Paul had a tremendous heart to reach his Jewish fellow countrymen, if you would, with the gospel message of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as Paul had met Jesus and experienced the conversion of his soul, he longed that his fellow Jews would come to the same experience with Jesus. And though Paul made multiple attempts, he only experienced repeated rejection. Uproars would happen in cities, riots would break out as we've seen Paul's been falsely accused by the Jews that despised him. He's been attacked by riotous mobs. People seeking to beat him, not only just to hurt him, but actually to beat him to death. He had to be arrested, remember, and taken into custody by the Roman police force there at the atonia Fortress in the Temple Mount just to spare him from death. And the Roman commander then discovering that Paul also had Roman citizenship, remember, he refrained from scourging Paul to extract more information why he was causing such a stir in the city, and he brought him. Before the religious council of that day the religious high court or Sanhedrin to get them to kind of interview and bring him through a trial process to kind of further understand why are they accusing him and attacking him and they despise him so much and though Paul had great hopes that the religious council would be receptive to his testimony as he started to give testimony before them things went really bad again Paul got slapped in the face, responded a little bit angrily, and the next thing you know, another riot breaks out. Things got so chaotic, we read in chapter 23, verse 10, that there arose such a great dissension, the commander again, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces. It says he commanded the soldiers again to rush in, to go down, take Paul out by force, and bring him back into protective custody in the Roman barracks. Now, at this point, Paul was very discouraged, extremely disappointed. It seemed like every effort he was making just kept bottoming out. And he's a weary, discouraged servant of the Lord at this point. It seemed that his efforts had failed. And Jesus now comes to him. In this downcast condition, verse 11, we saw, and stands by him and gives Paul this word of promise Be of good cheer, verse 11, he says, Paul, for as you've testified for me in Jerusalem. In other words, Paul, you didn't fail. You did testify in Jerusalem. Your testimony wasn't received. You didn't see the fruitful ministry results that you preferred. But, Lord, but Paul, you did do what was faithful unto me. You did give testimony. I recognize what you did for me. Your effort was good, and it didn't accomplish what you intended. But he says, Paul, you've testified for me in Jerusalem. And notice, so you must also bear witness in Rome. So at this point, Paul now receives a promise from Jesus, a guarantee that just as he had testified in Jerusalem, that he must, and Jesus said must, also in the same way testify of the Lord Jesus Christ In the capital city of the Roman Empire, in Rome as well. So he now has this guarantee and this promise from the Lord. Well, that means this that if it's a promise from the Lord, nothing and no one is going to be able to interfere with the Lord Jesus bringing to pass what he's determined to happen. Because it's a promise from Jesus. And if Jesus said Paul was going to Rome and he would bear witness there, Jesus, the Lord of all, would ensure that happened. Now, what Paul did not know is what the process would involve to get him from here over the next few years, ultimately to Rome. What part of the journey would be to fulfill that ultimate purpose for his life? Perhaps it seems it was a lot longer journey than what Paul expected it was going to be to arrive at that destination. And there were a lot more bumps in the road and twists and turns and a few storms and rough travel along the way. However, the Lord would keep overruling and working on Paul's behalf to bring about what he wanted For Paul's life in the end. Now remember, he's just been spared from a riot. He's just going through the religious council. He's sitting in protective custody. He's just received a promise. And then verse 12 sounds like something's going to stop the promise right away. Look at verse 12. And when it was day, the next day, some of the Jews banded together. And bound themselves under an oath, the idea is an anathema oath, it was the idea of a curse coming upon them if this didn't happen, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So again, these particular Jews who greatly hated Paul for his devotion to this Jesus of Nazareth, who Paul believed and knew was the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, here we see they now come together and they form this plot working together to do whatever it's going to take to actually kill and murder Paul the Apostle. And please take note here, they formulated a plan not just to cause a little more trouble in Paul's life, not just to give him a few more lumps and bruises and drive him out of Jerusalem. They literally formulate a hateful plot of a murder assassination. They literally are intending to assassinate Paul the Apostle working in cooperation. Now, notice as well, they're pretty intense in their effort because they say, we're not going to eat or drink until we've killed him. Now, you can't go very long, right, without food and something to drink. So that indicates the intensity of this. We're not going to drink a drop of fluid or eat a a morsel of food until this guy's murdered. It gives you a reality of how intense they are in their hatred and their agenda to put Paul to death. And notice, this wasn't just one or two severely disgruntled people. Verse 13 says there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So this wasn't just one or two kind of disgruntled people who kind of went off the rails and they got an assassination plot. It says there were over 40 people that collectively came together with this assassination ambush plot that they're putting together. Now, let me just say, you have to have amongst you a really, really strong leader To be able to rally together a group of over 40 people with that kind of a hateful, brutal agenda to destroy a good and a godly man. But yet we know exactly who that wicked ringleader was. That wicked ringleader was the unseen devil who was operating in the midst of those 40-plus people who came together with this idea to want to destroy the life of a good man who was just doing good things. And the devil himself is the, if you would, unseen ringleader, of the powers of deception persuading this evil agenda in the minds of these people to want to do whatever they can to just destroy this man to ruin him and bring the end of this servant of the Lord. Jesus himself indicated this is the devil's agenda. In John chapter 8, Jesus said this. He said to those who were you speaking to in that day, you are doing the works of your own father. They said, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself, to which Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I've come from God. I've not come on my own, but God sent me. What is my is my language not clear to you? Then Jesus said this because you're unable to hear what I say because you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth, for there is no truth in him. For when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Interesting. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, looked at humanity and he said, humanity really is dissected into two categories. Depends upon who your father is spiritually. And he says, people either have God as their father if they are legitimate children of God through a spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby they are born spiritually and now become a legitimate spiritual child of God. And he says, other than that, everyone else... They have a different spiritual father, whether they recognize it or not. He says, You are of your father, the devil. And he says, You therefore want to do the agenda of your father. And he's been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So Jesus indicates here's the MO and some of the agenda of the devil on the earth to which he even utilizes people who aren't following God to bring about his desires, which is to murder and to destroy lives, to ruin lives to lie and deceive and misguide people through putting out lies and agendas and false truths John chapter 10 Jesus said the devil operates in a way like a thief where he comes to rob and kill and destroy and here among this group devil himself is the unseen ringleader motivating these ideas filling the hearts of these people with this hatred towards Paul the apostle putting into their minds this evil agenda To believe lies about Paul, it's inspiring them in these wicked intentions to carry out their agenda to destroy him. And let me just say this morning, folks, by way of application, we have to be aware and not naive that as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to speak the truth on his behalf, to serve his purposes, we are going to generate hatred towards our lives. It is just a biblical reality that if you seek to represent the Lord and his kingdom, you are going to generate hatred from the kingdom of darkness. Jesus himself promised this to us. Probably not a Bible promise that you claim all the time. But John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world That is why the world hates you. There is this hatred that will come towards our lives, and we need to recognize this to some degree. I hope there's not assassination plots against any of our lives this morning, but people will gladly do what they can to railroad your life, to ruin your life, and and in our culture, this hatred is real. There's a real level of animosity to destroy the lives of God's people, of those who believe the truths of the word of God, those who want to have a moral basis from Scripture of what is right and what is wrong, those who want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and speak on his behalf. There are people and groups that honestly are, whether they realize it or not, like this group, that are diabolically being inspired with hate and, And agendas and desires to ruin and railroad whatever they can and whoever they can that does anything to advance the cause of Christ or do what is even good and moral in the culture. And there are individuals and groups very motivated to destroy the work of the Lord or any person doing good, even as they were here with Paul the Apostle. So this conspiracy has come together for this ambush. Look what they do, verse 14. It says, they came, interesting, look who they go to, the chief priests and the elders. And they said, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we're going to eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, verse 15, With the council, suggest to the Roman commander that he be brought down to you again tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiry concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So, this group of 40 who hates Paul and has this ambush plan to assassinate him. They now go to the religious council, the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders of that day. It says the chief priests, verse 14, the elders, the religious leaders, and they want them to help them bring their plan to pass. You notice they go to them and they tell them, look, we want to kill Paul. We've taken this oath and we're asking you as the religious council with some you know, kind of control and power in the culture to do what you can to assist us in this process here's what our ideas are and we want you they tell them we want you to ask the roman commander if you can have a second time of inquiring more about paul and they say go to the commander and request look could we interview and try Paul one more time. Yesterday didn't go so good, but we we're going to keep it peaceful this time. And we just want to inquire a little bit more about him. And they say, "Look, when you do that, that's perfect because then when Paul's in transport, right before he gets there, we'll be raiding and hiding, and verse 15 says, "We are ready to then jump out and to kill him when he comes near to that meeting with you." Now, very interesting. They say Request of the commander as though, verse 15, as though you were going to make further inquiries. In other words, they're saying, look, be really sincere so that the commander will be sympathetic. Make sure you're very well in your deception so he doesn't catch on to what we're doing and tell him this lie as though you were going to further inquire, but really, you know, it's just a setup so that we can jump out in our ambush and actually murder Paul in cold Blood. Now, the religious leaders clearly are willing to cooperate in this process and participate in this corrupt and hurtful practice. And I don't know about you, but how sad to see organized religious leaders and chief priests who have become so corrupt so politically motivated in their activities and their agenda that this group of 40 assassins go to them and ask religious leaders for help and they even expect to get full cooperation. (laughs) That they know that they are that corrupt in who they are that they'll get full cooperation in this process. They're confident that religious leaders will be more than happy and quite good at lying deceiving the people, and even ruining and destroying someone's life. What a sad testament and a great reminder that just because somebody's operating under religious covering does not mean that they're right with God. You know, it is very clear, even Jesus himself warned about that there are people who he called who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And folks recognize they even exist among the established church. So this plot is now set. It doesn't look good, but verse 16, God's eye is on the situation. Look what happens. It says, so when Paul's sister's son, that is his nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So notice, here we start to see the providential care And work of God starting to unfold. One of Paul's relatives, his nephew, we're told here, who obviously cared greatly about his uncle Paul and had a respect for him. He just so happens, no coincidence, of course, he just so happens by God's orchestration to be at the right place at just the right time to become aware of this murderous plot to ambush and kill paul and then he exercises the courage to do what's necessary to be able to head off their plan and do what it takes to spare his uncle paul and again here you have what an everyday circumstance just an ordinary event of natural events in life to actually divert and to stop this evil effort to end up assassinating paul the apostle certainly the hand of god in verse 16 is clearly involved in just normal and everyday events it just simply tells us how did god resolve the problem he allowed paul's nephew to hear about the ambush and then he went And he told his uncle Paul in the barracks about this assassination plot. Through some means, God worked in the circumstances to allow, again, this young man to be at just the right place at the right time to somehow overhear what they were talking about or that he knew somebody that was really proud about what they were going to do and accidentally talked about it and he gets word of it, whatever it may be the way God did it. This natural everyday circumstance was used of the Lord to help bring about the plan of God, to work on Paul's behalf, to shield Paul and natural everyday activity. God allowed events to unfold, people to interact in just conversations, general communication, and that was instrumental in doing what was best to bring about God's purpose and God's plan ultimately what a great reminder for all of us of how the Lord works sometimes folks in circumstances in just everyday natural affairs God's providence is at work in everyday things and a lot of times we don't even recognize it we don't even quite pay attention to it but yet think about it God could have right he could have used so many other means to solve this problem when Peter was in prison, God sent an angel of the Lord and did this miraculous thing and got him out of the prison. Mirac- God could have sent an angel in. One angel could have came in and just you know backed everybody down. and she- But God didn't bring an angel. God didn't do some incredible supernatural sign or wonder. What does God do? God allows somebody to overhear a conversation. God allows somebody to catch wind of a rumor to get some information and takes that information and just goes and visits his uncle Paul and ordinary affairs and says, look, I, I need to let you know what's going on. But God was working in that, in just natural conversations, everyday circumstances. God was, and if you would, working in a supernaturally natural way through everyday circumstances, situations that arise that God was coordinating and superintending over. And the Lord does that, folks. He works in just routine events of everyday life. God's hand is involved in everything, absolutely everything. And God doesn't always need to send an angel. He doesn't always need to do the handwriting on the wall. Well, God, if I could just see your handwriting on the wall. People never realize when God's handwriting showed up on the wall, that was a bad thing. Oh, Lord, could you just let me see your handwriting on the wall? You might not want to ask for that. How about you just read your Bible, pray, and maybe see what God's doing in circumstances and realize, okay, God's in control of everything and seems the door's open or seems the door's closed or seems like this happened or I heard this through a conversation and, and, and recognize God's interweaving all the things that are happening on the earth, coordinating everything for his purposes. He's involved in everything. Here, just a little bit of a hearsay comes along to this young man and look what he now goes and does. Verse 17, he called one of the centurions to him, Paul did, and he said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and he asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to say to you. Now notice as well, Paul uses wisdom and stewardship in this process. By not dismissing the value of practical activity, Paul doesn't set aside the wisdom and the benefit of just practical activity. Paul gets this information. Some information comes across his radar screen, and Paul could have just sent his nephew home and dropped down on his knees and started praying an intercessory prayer, Lord, you know about this, and please help. And perhaps Paul did that too. But he didn't dismiss the value of just exercising practical steps. He said, that's a helpful piece of information. We're going to act upon that. Let's talk to the police. And he tells his nephew, listen, wait a minute here. I'm going to see if the centurion will bring you to the commander and you need to go tell him that there's an assassination plot that's set up against my life. And he just uses practical steps to reach the best solution. He understood the value and the purpose of the protective benefit of law enforcement among the Roman culture. And so he says, look, take this young man, bring him to the commander. He's got a message to tell him. He's got an important piece of advice. Paul believed the Lord worked through natural avenues, through practical means. Again, you see Paul demonstrating his confidence in the same thing, that God can do supernatural events through everyday occurrences. And God's doing it very supernaturally natural. And we never want to overlook this, to always remember and not become, if I could use the term, hyper-spiritual where sometimes we think it has to be signs and wonders and these, you know, mysterious things. God's involved in the affairs of earth and everyday human activity. And he works in the practical realm. He's the God of creation. He controls everything. He's just as much working in human events and conversations and everyday ordeals as he is in the amazing signs and wonders and bells and whistles and angelic intervention. Notice the centurion didn't reject Paul's request either to send the young man. He didn't just kind of dismiss him. It says the centurion, when he was called over, took this young man and he brought him to the commander. Now, to me, that again, that's interesting. Apparently, God moved on the heart of this centurion to actually have a willingness to entertain what a prisoner just asked him to do the centurion could have said you're a prisoner i'm not doing what you tell me to do i'm a roman centurion and who's this young man i mean we we don't know him from adam how do we know his information is credible but apparently again unseen but yet happening under the surface god is moving on the heart of the centurion to make him inclined to cooperate with the purposes and the plans of God ultimately to where he's actually willing to entertain Paul's request and to bring the young man to his commanding officer and to work on their behalf, doing what's best for God's person that's involved in the given situation. And and let me say, oftentimes we talk about stuff like that, and we use this term sometimes as Christians, we talk about God's divine favor Man, I can really sense God's divine favor in what just happened there, that the favor of the Lord was involved in that situation. And sometimes that is what happens. God has this amazing way sometimes to just put favor into the heart or the mind of a human being to be willing to do something to benefit one of his people or for the people of God. And here, God just moves. And if you could say he kind of put divine favor in the heart of that centurion who was willing to say, Okay, yeah, I'll bring you over to my commander and you can, and this is the favor of the Lord, the hand of God moving on the heart and the mind of a person to benefit and to help his people. Notice the divine favor continues. Look at verse 19. Then the commander, the higher ranking officer, he took him by the hand when he got there, went aside and asked him privately, what is it that you want to tell me? So now here's even a higher-ranking officer, and again, he doesn't dismiss the young man. He doesn't say, I don't have time for this, and and rebuke his centurion underneath him. Would you bring me this guy with a message from a prisoner? Again, he's receptive. He actually takes this young man, he walks him aside by the hand, gets him somewhere private, wants to do what would help out, and he says, "Uh, what do you want to tell me? And he's willing to listen to this young man's information. Proverbs tells us the Lord can turn the hearts of kings whatever way he wishes. What a beautiful thing we're going to see in the book of Ezra very shortly on Wednesday nights as we're finishing 2 Chronicles. In the book of Ezra, it starts out by telling us that God stirs the heart of a pagan Persian ruler, Cyrus. He stirs the heart and the spirit of Cyrus to actually do what's necessary to help God's people build their temple. God can do this, folks. God can stir the hearts of people. God can change the minds of individuals. God can put favor and willingness and desire into the hearts of people who don't even know God. To want to do things that would benefit his people or do something to bring about what he wants to do on behalf of those who are his servants. What a wonderful thing. Perhaps you've experienced it before. And let me say to you, believe that God can do that. God can move on someone's heart. God can stir someone's mind to do what would be in your best interest if that's part of his plan. So verse 20 says that he said to him, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though, notice, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but don't yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who've bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they've killed him. Now they're ready and they're just waiting for the promise from you, So he informs the commander of the assassination plot, and he even is bold enough to instruct him, listen, commander, don't do it. <laughs> That's pretty bold for this young man. Here's what's going to happen, and I'm telling you, don't do it. You have the opportunity, he's saying, to actually do what's necessary to stop this from happening. You have the power to stop someone from being put to death. Now, rather than the commander be irritated by this young man bringing this information, he's receptive. Look at verse 22. It says, the commander, let the young man then depart. And he just commanded him, tell nobody that you've revealed these things to me. So he releases him. He says, look, just don't disclose this to anybody. Let me do my job in my authority to do what's necessary to handle making security preparations to keep Paul safe and to stop this from happening. Now, notice here if you haven't yet, this is the third time the Holy Spirit refers to Paul's nephew as a young man. Now, to me, that's interesting because it likely indicates, if nothing else, uh, this wasn't anybody of real significance in the community. Maybe he was a young man, you know, early twenties, young adult. Uh, nobody that's really well known he's just referred to as a young man so to me that indicates he's got plenty of reason to be intimidated to be doing all the things that he's actually doing here he has plenty reasons to be dismissed or afraid to carry out this request because he's worried about what might happen to his own skin in the process but yet this young man exercises tremendous courage to do what is right in the sight of the Lord rather than be concerned about his own welfare, and he does what's right in a very difficult situation very courageously. And remember, courage is, is not the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness to do what's right in the face of fear because you realize something bigger is at stake than just yourself. And this young man exercises tremendous courage To do what's right. How wonderful to see God working in such a way through a young man. May God give us more young men, young women who are willing to place doing what's right and standing up against sin and evil as more important than their own acceptance or their own comfort or what's going to be in their own best interest that they be convicted to do the right thing despite any personal cost to themselves. May God give us more young men like this nephew of Paul the Apostle. Again, God, as I said, could have chosen any means to rescue his servant, right? This is God here. He could have used any means to rescue his servant, but yet what does he do? God works through a willing young man to orchestrate it. And it reminds you and I this morning that God can and will use folks, anybody, that's willing and available to accomplish his work and good purposes, God will use you. God will use me. God can use anybody that's willing to fulfill his purpose and plan. I think of the godly Mordecai in his words that he spoke to his niece, Esther, in the book of Esther, great book to read. Esther 4.14 tells us that Mordecai, this uncle, sent word to Esther who was there in the palace married to the king. And Esther, of course, remember, finds herself married to the king because the king put to death his wife, and then he had this beauty contest, and he chose Esther to be his next wife, and she comes and becomes wed to the king there, this pagan king, as a Jewish woman, and and, uh, tremendous favor and opportunities there. She's now married to the king. And this murderous plot comes about where there's this effort to want to exterminate all of the Jewish people, to put them to death. And now here is Queen Esther in the spot. She is a Jewish woman. These are her people that are about to be destroyed. And she could sit there silent and try and spare her own neck or she could speak up and try and see if God might use her. And Mordecai said these words to her. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, what godly Mordecai was saying to her was, look, God's not limited. If you choose not to do what's right, God will intervene by some other way. But you'll miss the opportunity to be used by God. And he says, how do you know whether or not God has brought you To right where you are in your life right now in that place and position for this time for such a time as this because he wants to use you in this given situation you know that's an important reminder for all of us sometimes God gives us opportunities to be involved in what he's doing the question is this are you going to step into God's story How do you know if maybe God has you right where he does in that job, in the family that you're in, living in the generation that you are, maybe somehow connected to the situation that you find yourself in for such a time as this? And he's got you exactly where he has you because he wants to use you in a unique way if you're willing to step in to the story, even as this young man did. Well, verse twenty three says that in light of this the centurion called for or excuse me, the commander called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night or nine PM and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So the commander now wants to send Paul, if you would, to the next level of of government control. Because he realizes in his situation, this is way beyond my pay grade and capacity to resolve this. So he arranges for a nighttime transport at 9 p.m. under the cover of darkness to move Paul safely now over to Felix, the governor in Caesarea. Notice the transport doesn't consist of just a few guards. But if you notice what's described there, but 470 armed Roman soldiers. Now, that's what I call security overload. 470 armed soldiers to transport one man. That's better than the President of the United States gets, as far as I understand. All these individuals loaded with weapons to bear as a security detail to bring into to the headquarters of the Roman area of Judea. Paul's transport to Felix the governor is now the next step in God's process and Who's behind this? God. God goes, you know what? I'm not going to just give him security. He prompts the little mind of the at 470 people. But what's God doing? God's ensuring that what he wants to come to pass is going to come to pass. And folks, when God is superintending in a situation, he will do whatever it takes to ensure that things come to pass. To keep things safe, to keep things stable, to keep things together. And Paul's a prisoner is now brought to Felix the governor. He became appointed in 52 AD, reigned about seven years, and was a powerful political leader, but also quite an immoral individual. We'll see that in chapter 24. So he writes a letter and sends it to the to the governor as he sends him there, Claudius Lysias, that was the commander's name, to the most Felix, uh, most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and about to be killed by them. And coming with troops, I rescued him. Boy, he sounds like he's bragging a little. Having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. And I found that he was accused concerning questions of their law, that is religious matters, but had nothing charged against him deserving death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for him, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded that his accusers would state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So take note, the letter is now sent from the commander and one thing you want to clearly note in this letter, most of it is information we understand already, verse 29 he emphasizes, he says, this man has done nothing that could be charged against him deserving death or chains. The commander makes it very clear, Paul has violated no laws. He's broken no laws to where he deserves condemnation or punishment. He's an innocent man but yet he's greatly hated by the people. Sounds like somebody else I know, an innocent man who was greatly hated by the people, Paul's commander-in-chief, Jesus. So he says, look, this man's broken the laws. This is a religious matter. But again, God's superintending over this, moving Paul now to Felix the governor. And verse 31 says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul brought him by night to Antipatris, Antipatris, and then the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. So they bring him close to the area of Caesarea. When they get to the area of Antipatris, it tells us that probably the 400 retreat and the 70 cavalrymen, they bring Paul the rest of the way now to Caesarea as they're close to the area. And verse 33 says, when they then came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also to him, and the governor read the letter, and then he asked what province Paul was from, and he understood that Paul was from Cilicia. He then said, I will hear you when, notice, when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Paul's briefly interviewed. He gets a few details And then notice, he's kept in protective custody, it says, until his accusers arrive to present their charges. And notice where he's kept the end of verse 35. It says he's kept in Herod's Praetorium. Now, this is interesting, because Herod's Praetorium was a lavish palace built in that day by Herod the Great that was utilized basically as the capital building and the official residence of the Roman procurators. So Paul goes from being in the dingy barracks of a Roman fortress in Jerusalem to now being in a nice, lush palace, you know, Sheraton, I don't know what's the highest point, hotel. I mean, in a, in a, in a palace in Herod's Praetorium where he now has to sit and wait until his accusers show up. And I look at this and I think, man, God knows how to take care of his people. He takes Paul out of a dingy barracks and he puts him up in a palace that Herod the Great had built. And again, God knows, despite what people do to us, how to always take care of his people. He takes really good care of us. If we were to be honest, I mean, the way God works at times to do what's in our best interest, he takes even what the enemy intends for evil, right? And he turns it for good. He takes a curse and he turns it into a blessing. Now, this will begin a two-year period where Paul is now confined in Roman custody, waiting there for his accusers to show up. In fact, more than that, it actually will be a few years where Paul is kept in Roman custody until he ultimately ends up getting to appear before Caesar in Rome. But that means this, as Paul's confined in Roman custody, guess what he's unable to do? He can't travel around like he used to. He can't do the things probably that he wished he was able to. He can't minister and move around as he did in prior years, planning churches and preaching sermons. Yet, even in those restricted circumstances, God had some good ideas in mind. Because over these next few years, as Paul's kept restricted under Roman custody and confined by his circumstances, it's in that time period that Paul picks up the pen And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is moved to write multiple letters to churches with glorious spiritual and eternal truths that become a part of our New Testament scripture. What an amazing thing, God's providence. He slows his servant down to confine him because he wants to use Paul a little differently in the next season. And I always take this into consideration. Many more lives have been affected and impacted by Paul's letters that were written than by any of the sermons that he preached one time in a church service. They didn't even record and put it on podcast back then. It was one time and it was gone. But Paul being restricted by his circumstances was able to accomplish much greater fruit because why? Because God had the bigger picture in mind. Because God always sees the bigger picture and God always works to that end. You know, perhaps today you find yourself in circumstances and you wish they were different. Maybe you even feel restricted by your situation stuck in some job or just in a circumstance where it seems like you're kind of confined and restricted for this time and season can I encourage you maybe God has you right where you are and restricted to right where you are at this time because maybe God has some things he wants you to do by just blooming right where you're planted and recognizing that that may some way contribute to a bigger picture you never know what God has down the road in the future god 's fully aware and god's fully involved in all that he 's doing let's stand.